Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks, Rob. Lahe. Uh, well, good morning. Um, if you are uh, just joining us or haven't been around uh, for the last short season, last month or so, we are in the middle of a uh, series, a sermon series on the book of Philippians. Uh, this is a epistle that Paul wrote from prison to a dearly beloved church in the town of Philippi, kind of in northern Greece in, in the area of Macedonia. It's been called before uh, Paul's epistle of joy, that almost every uh, word, every sentence of this book is aimed towards taking the reader, taking the church at Philippi deeper into an experience of joy. The problem is, is that if you, if you read the book and you go, okay, he's leading us towards joy, he's leading us towards joy, uh, he doesn't necessarily lead on the path to joy the way that you would think he does or necessarily the way that you would hope that he does. Um, because the way that Paul seems to lead to joy is completely opposite, is, is counterintuitive to the way we normally like to think about increasing our joy. We normally like to think about increasing our joy by adding or winning or conquering or mastering or um, climbing this ladder to the top. And when we get to the top of this ladder, we will have more joy. Paul flips the ladder. He turns the ladder over and actually says, if you keep trying to climb the ladder, it's going to steal your joy. That the path to joy for the Christian is by getting to the bottom of the ladder, not to the top. The path to joy for the Christian is by dying, not by, not by uh, winning. The path to joy for the Christian is by losing, not by gaining. And so, uh, we're calling our sermon series, uh, Winning by Losing, the path to joy in, in Philippians. And our theme verse is chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where Paul says, Whatever were gains to me, whatever ladders I had climbed, uh, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He's saying, I didn't get in touch with joy until I got to the bottom of the ladder, until I realized it actually took losing, losing my grip on things that I thought would bring me joy, losing my grip on my control and my demanding that my life go a certain way and feel a certain way. It was actually in giving those things up that I found a deeper experience of joy in the person of Jesus. So that's the, that's the overarching theme. Um, this week we are, we are looking at kind of part two of last week. Um, last week, if you were here or, um, or weren't here, or if you fell asleep and you were here, let me remind you that uh, we looked at this idea of the joy of losing your own self-interest. The more we lose an interest in ourselves, the more we actually get a deeper joy of focusing on the interest of others and seeing our life, seeing other people as more important than ourselves. That's what Paul says in the opening lines of, of chapter 2. This is, this is uh, like the 201 version of that. This is, this is the master's level, next level of that idea for Paul. So the first four verses of chapter 2, he says, Hey, church, I'm leading you to become a beautiful community. Church, I'm asking you to lose, to give up your own self-interest that you might gain the joy of serving others. I'm, giving, I'm leading you into being this people who are united and show deference to one another and treat each other like royalty. That's the picture of the church. That's the beautiful people. That's the beautiful community. And so now he's going to take one step deeper into that. He's going to basically give us, give the reader give the church at Philippi um, uh, uh, another lesson in how to do that. So this is uh, coming off the heels of last week. This is chapter two, starting in verse five. Paul says this, having this mind among yourselves, the mind of considering other people's interests above your own, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mm. It's the word of the Lord. So it should be noted that many who have uh, written about this passage, many scholars on the book of Philippians would say that if the New Testament is a mountain range, uh, Philippians 2 is certainly one of the highest peaks. Uh, That the New Testament theology, New Testament teaching, New Testament revelation of truth that has all kinds of, of categories and topics that when it comes to the person of Jesus and the nature of God, you will not find a more robust a more rich or a more dense section of scripture, anything loftier. You will find nothing more magnificent about the person of Jesus than the six verses that we just read in Philippians 2. This is, this is the highest peak of the, one of the highest peaks of New Testament theology right here. Meaning, caveat, qualifier for the preacher, we will not cover all that this passage has to teach in one sermon. Unless the rain keeps us in here and we're gonna be here for the rest of the day, uh, we, can, we can try to uncover a few more layers of it. But what I mean by that is, is that just about every word of what we just read, those six verses, is dripping with theological significance and theological importance. This passage is a theological heavy passage. And so if I'm going to do the work of the preacher, the work of the teacher, I have to teach the text. I have to, I have to just sh- teach what we just walked through. And so there will be a little bit of a heavy theology this morning because that's what the text is. And this text is full of theology. Um, and more specifically, this text is heavy Christology, meaning if you just put that word together, break that word apart, um, it's a theology of Jesus, a study, the doctrine of Jesus, a learning of Jesus. Who was Jesus? What's the person of Jesus? What's the nature of Jesus? What's the work of Jesus? This is one of the highest Christological passages in the entire New Testament. So we're going to talk about this. this will be, there will be a lot of theology this morning. You're like, man, I, really, I decided to come back to church this morning. This is the, this is the day I came out of COVID. Uh, we're going to do a theological lesson on Christology and what the Bible and what this passage says specifically about Jesus. But that's not all we're going to do. It's certainly not all that Paul was doing. Paul is not giving this this six-verse dense Christology section in Philippians so that the Philippian church can get an A on their Christology test. He's not just wanting them to know the right answers and to be able to mentally assent to proper theology about Christ. Now, all that stuff's important, but that's not why Paul just inserts it in here in this section in Philippians 2. Remember, Paul has just exhorted the church, hey, I'm trying to lead you on how to become the beautiful community. I'm trying to lead you on how to think about yourself in the world and how to view other people. And I'm trying to show you um, what, what, what it means for the church to be a people of harmony and of unity to treat each other like royalty. Out of that place, he's trying to then show them a picture of Jesus. He's trying to show them um, who this Jesus is. And he's trying to show them a picture that is so vivid and so beautiful and so compelling in these six verses that we just read that you couldn't behold this Jesus and not be changed by it. He knows that if I show them the real Jesus, if I give them this, the highest Christological section in Scripture, if I just condense all of this into these six verses and show them the person of Jesus, they can't help but be compelled and moved 
by the person of Jesus, which is actually what the New Testament says about itself. The book of 1 John says that when we see Jesus, that we don't see Jesus right now because we're in a broken world and we're full of sin and we're full of pride and we're full of our own egos and we need the truth of who Jesus is to be revealed to us. We don't see Jesus as he truly is. You don't. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You don't see Jesus fully and truly. And then the book of 1 John says one day, you will see Jesus fully. One day you will see him as he is. And guess what? When you see him as he is, you will instantly be like him. That there's a power, there's a, there's a compulsion, there's a transformation that happens to the hearer, to the listener, to the receiver when we have our eyes open and we see Jesus for who he really is. First John says, when you see Jesus the way that he really is, one day when you go to be with him, you will be just like him. And so until that day, we see through this window, we see it's like these fogged windows. Like we can't, we can get a little bit of a glimpse outside, but we don't know exactly what's going on. We see through a, a glass dimly, the New Testament says. And the work of this church, the work of this passage, the work of the Bible, the work of why we gather is I want to see Jesus more clearly than I currently do. And the hope is, is that like 1 John promises, the more we see Jesus, the more we will be like him. We can't help but be compelled by him. We can't help but be taken in by his beauty because he's the most wonderful person that's ever lived. And we will be, we will be transformed just by beholding him. So that's what we're going to try to do. That's what Paul is trying to do. That's why he inserts this after exhorting them to become the beautiful community. After saying, hey, I need you to understand um, that the beautiful community uh, looks like this and serves one another. I need you to understand that, that, that there is this, there is this uh, way in which the church is supposed to view each other. And then he inserts this high Christology passage. He's saying, because when you see him, you will be transformed into doing this. Doesn't appear like it um, in the English version that we read this morning. We read from the English Standard Version this morning, which is a great translation. Uh, of, the, of the Bible, but in most English translations, what we just read, those six verses appear like a poem. They appear like a song. They appear like prose. It's written uh, that way. It, it's meant to be read that way. And it's because most scholars, critical or um, conservative on this passage, are fairly sure that Paul is quoting some ancient church hymn or song about Jesus. The six verses that we read this morning was actually uh, like Paul's first single, like that he wrote uh, a hymn about Jesus and it climbed to the CCM charts, it topped it. Uh, that this, this was a well-known hymn that he's, he's inserting here and proving uh, something about Jesus by inserting this song here. Um, so what's the hymn about? What's the song about? What's the high Christology of this song uh, in Philippians 2? Well, if you remember, like we said, that coming off last week's heels of, hey, church, I want you to be a beautiful community of unity and of, and, of, and of humility and of considering other people more important than yourselves, that's what he says in verses one through four. Then he says, oh, and by the way, you've never met anyone that has lived that reality more than Jesus. Jesus lived that paradigm that I just told you that I'm calling you to live. Jesus lived that paradigm of treating other people like royalty. Jesus lived that paradigm of living a humble life. Jesus lived that paradigm, the paradigm of consider other people's interests and needs over your own interest. Jesus lived that paradigm infinitely more than anyone in the history of ever. That's what this six verse section, that's what this song is all about. This is what he's saying. Jesus did for you the very thing that you were being called to do. That I'm calling you into this life, Philippian church, 
Midtown Fellowship Church. I'm calling you into this life for each other, for the sake of each other. But you need to know that you're not the first one to do it. Jesus is the forerunner of this. Jesus is the trailblazer of this. Jesus is the firstborn of a new humanity that did this infinitely more than you will ever even understand that he did for you. Jesus emptied himself for the sake of others and their good. Look at what he says in the opening line of the song, uh, verse six and seven. He says this. Will you throw this back up there, Nicole? Opening line, he says, though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Okay, remember, we're we're doing high Christology, heavy Christology for the first part of our sermon today. Okay, so buckle up. Here's what Paul just said. Paul just told you that the Jesus of the Bible didn't start existing at Christmas. He just told you that before the world began, Jesus existed. It's known as the preeminence of Christ, the preexistent Christ. Jesus existed before anything else existed because he's a member of the Trinity. And what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, was potentially the most mind-blowing event, maybe even more so than the crucifixion or the resurrection or even the ascension of Jesus, that the incarnation of Jesus was perhaps the most mind-blowing event in human history he agrees. <laughs> Live stream, there was just a thunder boom because I'm bringing the noise. I hope, or maybe I got that wrong. Uh, here, here's what Paul just said. Christmas, the incarnation, was the moment that the infinite became finite. The incarnation was the moment that the eternal became temporal. The incarnation was the moment that the, created be, the creator became created. The incarnation was the moment that the transcendent became imminent. God put on flesh in the person of Jesus, but Jesus didn't start existing in a manger. He had existed from eternity past. He has no beginning. He was equal with God in the beginning. He has no beginning because he was God. And so what we experienced on Christmas was just the revelation of who he already was. We experienced the the incarnation of God, but it wasn't the beginning of Jesus. And it would be easy to think that people who are in power, people who are in royalty, people who have reign and authority, people who have glory, it's easy to see because of our experiences in the world and because of the, the track record of those people, that people who reign, people who are seated high above other people in the food chain, it's easy to see everything they do through the lens that if they have power, everything they do is to get more power. It's easy to think that if they have glory, everything they do is to get more glory. And you think that, and I think that about people because it's true. People in power, people in glory tend to keep wanting to perpetuate their position in that place. But what Paul just told you is that Jesus had power, Jesus had glory, and his actions to become a man were not driven by what you think they were driven by. He didn't come to use you to get more glory for himself. He already had glory. What did Paul just say? He was equal with God. Okay, so pause for a second. If Jesus was equal with God, he lacked nothing. He didn't need more glory. He didn't need more power. He already had that infinitely so. He was not lacking more glory or lacking any more power, any more authority. And so he thought, man, if I want to really climb the food chain here, if I want to really hold this position that I have as creator of the cosmos, I guess i got to go to earth. 
Like, do you realize the, the insanity of even thinking like that? It's like some PhD student who's graduated and, and being a professor thinking like, man, if I really want to prove my worth and really get some more clout, I better go back to kindergarten. Like, that, that's not how this works. He's going, no, I've, I've, I already had what, what you think I would have come to, to get more of. I already had a, a, a well-established state and position. I didn't need anything else. But, what did Paul just say? He didn't have that position and hold on to it for his own sake. He came not to use you and I to get more glory for himself. He came to use himself to give you glory. He totally turned the paradigm on its head. Christ did not think of his equality with God and his glory as something to use for his own advantage. That's what Philippians 2 just said, as something to be grasped. Like, this is a resource that I need, and I have to have it and use it and leverage it for my own sake to get more of it. He didn't consider his equality with God, his status with God, as something to hold on to to use for his own advantage. No, 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 no. He took what he had, he used his position of power and glory, and he didn't use it for his own good to perpetuate his own power and glory. He used his position and took it and leveraged it for the good of us, for the good of the world. This does not happen. This is not how people in power act. This is not how people with glory act, where they actually are leveraging themselves for the sake of other people beneath them. Actually at great cost to themselves, leveraging themselves for the sake of other people beneath them. And this is where the mountain peak keeps getting more magnificent, okay? So we're, we're in like high Christology, okay? This is, he was equal with God, he existed with God in the beginning, and then he stepped into humanity, became a created being, he stepped into the, to human likeness, but listen to what he says here. We're told in verse six, opening line, he says, though he was in the form of God. Okay, now we're gonna, we're gonna do a little bit of a word study here and pay attention to this and what, what Paul's doing on this kind of grammatical and sentence structure level, okay? When he says he was in the form of God, that word form is a very dense Greek word called morphe. It's where we get morphology or metamorphosis. It's a word that essentially means that the thing that you see or the thing that you behold fully represents the essence of what it represents. Like there is a one-to-one ratio of what is seen, the form of it, to the being of it. The outward appearance is consistent with what is. The form perfectly expresses the inner reality. That's what that word morphe means, okay? And it says here that Jesus was in the form, was in the morphe of God, meaning what Paul just said is, is everything about Jesus in its form fully represented the reality of what it was trying to represent, which was being equal with God, which means Jesus Christ, according to Paul here, according to the New Testament, has the unique and very identical qualities that make God God. Jesus Christ is in very nature God. Jesus Christ is the very substance of God. Jesus Christ has the very characteristics of God. Jesus is at the very being level, like substance ontological level. He is God. He is in very nature, his very being, the morphe of him fully and accurately and 100% represents the thing that it is trying to show you about the inner reality that he has got. Okay, hold on to that, because that's gonna be on the test. That then Paul says in verse seven, he was in morphe God, he was in form, he was in nature, he was in essence, he was in being God. Verse seven, he then emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Okay, form of a servant. Form, morphe of a servant. 
So here's what Paul's doing on the grammatical level because he very intentionally used the same word when he said Jesus was in very nature, was in very morphe. He was very, very God of very God. He also, when he became a man, took on the very nature, took on the very morphe of a servant. Okay, let me show you what he's doing by using the same thing. When he became a man and took on the form of a servant, it is not in contradiction to the thing that he was already in morphe of, which was God. Which means for Paul to try to use those, the same word about two different things, that he was in very nature God and he was in very nature a servant. The very nature of a servant doesn't disprove the very nature of God. So here's what Paul's saying. Those two things are synonyms. Though he was in the form of God, the essence of God, when he took on the form and the essence of a servant, it was displaying the true nature of the original form, of the original morphe. So when he says that he was the very nature of a servant, it means that Jesus' outer actions were confirming the already true inner reality, which was God, meaning this. What Paul just said, I realize, you're like, dude, why did we come to church this morning? Okay, here's what Paul just said to you. Is that what it means to be God is also what it means to be the very nature of a servant. The very essence of God, the very ontology of God, the very being of God is also the very essence and nature of a servant. Which means that Jesus didn't start serving when he came to earth. It's the very nature of God is the very nature of a servant. That when the world saw him in human form, please get this, this is, this is absolutely a high Christology that Paul is trying to get at you. It's a high uh, Trinitarian view of God. That when Jesus Christ became a man and was born in a manger, what we celebrate at Christmas, and he became the likeness of a man as a servant, he was not adding a characteristic to the nature of God. He was confirming the characteristic of what he already was, which was God. When the world saw him in human form, they weren't getting some new addition to God. God wasn't reimagining himself in the person of Jesus. He wasn't changing one thing about himself or his character when he came to serve. He is a servant. And what the world got to see at Christmas is, that's what God's like. Because the God who would do that is very God of very God. The God that just became a man is showing himself to be a servant because that's what God is like. That he is God. He's showing you who he really is. Jesus is God and Jesus is a servant and those two things are synonymous. He couldn't be a servant in the way that he was if he wasn't also God because God is a servant. Mark chapter 10, the son of man didn't come to be served, he came to serve. And when Jesus says that in Mark chapter 10, the son of man didn't come to be served but to serve, he wasn't saying, and you know what? This is nothing like the God that I came from. This is nothing like my Father. This is nothing like the Trinity that I'm a part of. Let me surprise you and show you something that, that, is, that is so ungodlike that I'm here to serve. He's actually saying, this is actually who the Trinity really is. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. The Son of Man came to serve because that's what I am. That's what God does. That's what the real God does. Jesus wasn't losing his identity as God when he came to serve. Jesus was proving his identity as God when he came to serve. You don't know a God like this. That this is the real God. That he was proving what God is really like by coming to serve because that's what God is really like. 
and his actions as a servant, his nature of a servant. Here's what servants do. It's what we studied last week. They put aside their own interests for the interests of others. Servants are so intentional with knowing the needs of those that they are trying to serve and asking themselves, how can I fit in? How can I do my part and give them what they need? And here's what should be blowing your mind right now is that his nature of a servant took him to the nth degree of servanthood that he was willing to go how far in order to do that, in order to accomplish what was needed for those that he was coming to serve. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Because his nature as a servant would not let him stop before the people that he was coming to serve got what they needed. What did they need? They needed him to be obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So that's the theology, that's the Christology of Philippians 2. So Paul just told you about Jesus in Philippians 2. But here's what we should be asking ourselves. Again, I'm trying to put this in context on, on like how to study scripture. Context always matters. Why does he insert this high Christology into Philippians 2 when the first four verses of Philippians 2, he just told the church, hey, don't look out for your own interests but the interests of others. Consider other people more significant than yourself. Be humble as you think about other people. Remember, he's not just inserting Jesus as an example here. He's not just saying, hey, Jesus was like this, so you should go and do the same. Because he's, he's, he's not trying to, he, Paul understands the human condition and Paul understands human nature, that we can't be just talked into doing this, that you, you, you can't just be inspired into doing this by having some great example. And it's where the, the bracelet movement came from 20 years ago, the what would Jesus do? They go, oh, well, if I, just, if I just think about what Jesus would do, then the pride of me would think, well, I can do exactly what Jesus would do. And so in every situation, that bracelet will turn me into Jesus. That's not what Paul's doing. Because Paul knows the problem goes way deeper than that. That you can't just be talked into going to do this. You can't just be inspired into going and doing this. Paul is trying to lead them by getting them to behold Jesus and not ask, what would Jesus do if he were me? No, he's trying to, after he exhorts them to go serve one another and think of one another and look out for others' interest above their own and treat others like royalty, he's then going, hey, and if you have any hope of ever doing that, you have to behold Jesus doing that for you. It's the only way you will ever do that is if you know that Jesus has done this for you. It's not what would Jesus do, it's what does Jesus do? What did Jesus do for me? It's the only chance I've got of actually living like him is if I experience him doing that for me first. So he's saying, hey, I just laid down on you in the first four, vor- first four verses um, an impossible task. I want you to think of other people as more important than yourselves. Good luck. Go get him, team. No. And if you have any hope of doing that, let me remind you in the highest Christological way possible how the nature of your Jesus is the nature of a servant, and he stopped at nothing to do this for you. Remember what we said, that Jesus wasn't losing his identity as God when he came to serve. Jesus was proving his identity as God when he came to serve. Therefore, it would be incomplete. This is what Paul is trying to say. It would be incomplete of us, and for the reader of the, of the original text here, the church at Philippi, it would be an incomplete understanding of what Paul is doing and why he's doing it to only put the perspective of Jesus as servant in the past. Here's what I mean by that. 
Jesus didn't come, humble himself, take on flesh, obey to the point of death, and now is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Um, he didn't just do that and then resurrect and ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father. He didn't do all that and go, man, whew, man that serving stuff was hard. I'm so glad I never have to do that again. <laughs> what Paul just told you is this is who Jesus is. He wasn't proving what kind of God Jesus was. He's proving what kind of God Jesus is, which means for you, which means for me, Jesus is still serving you. He didn't stop being a servant when he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Remember, to be in the very nature of God and also to be in the very nature of the servant are the same things. He didn't lose that characteristic when he ascended back to the Father's right hand. He has never stopped serving you. He's still doing it, which means this. He still sets himself aside for your sake. He still humbles himself to serve you. Your rebellion does not stop him from coming after you and serving you. He never stops serving you. This is your Jesus. This is high Christology, Jesus the servant. Jesus, still the servant. What does he say in the Gospels? Greater man has no love than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Do you understand? That's the present active form of that. He lays down, not he laid it down once, then he's done laying it down. Now, what happened at the cross was a once and for all thing that accomplished a great deal, but that doesn't mean that he did that and he was thrilled that he never had to serve you again. That's him washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. He's saying, hey, you're clean. But if I don't keep cleaning you, if I don't keep washing your feet and cleaning off the, 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 the mire and the mud, then you have no part in me. I've already cleaned you. I took care of that on the cross. But I've got to keep cleaning you. I still serve you. I still wash feet. The only problem with that is that getting lost in the beauty of that takes time. You may believe it slightly here when I say it. Jesus still serves you. But I know that um, many of you have had a life or are currently living a life that doesn't feel like Jesus is serving you. And so it's, it's hard to believe my experience with what Paul just said in Philippians 2. It doesn't feel like Jesus is serving me. It doesn't feel like Jesus is washing my feet. And sometimes, sometimes the only evidence we have of the nature of Jesus as a servant is the cross. That's why Paul talks about it here. Remember how committed he was to serving you and how he is the very nature of a servant and he doesn't lose that nature. He actually keeps that nature and he keeps serving you. And the only evidence you may have for that is what he's done for you on the cross. That's true. But you will, you will grow, I will grow in our standing and awe of Jesus the servant when we experience it for ourselves. And here's what I mean by that. When you're able to look back over seasons of your life and be very present with where you are, but also be very honest about where you've been and what you've done, and you realize that over the seasons of your life, you have given Jesus a thousand reasons to stop serving you, and not one of them has worked. And sometimes you believing that Jesus is still a servant can only come in time. Because you've got to see just how committed he is to serving you. You've got to see that all the reasons you and I give him to stop serving us don't work because he's God. Remember? 
Do you know who God is? Do you know how powerful God is? Let me put it this way. Do you know that God is going to do what God wants to do? <laughs> and look at what Philippians 2 just told you about God, what God wants to do. He wants to serve you. Which means, I'm sorry, you're just not quite important enough to stop him from doing what he wants to do. And what he wants to do, he is in the very nature. He is in very form, very morphe, a servant. You will not stop him from serving you. You can't do it. Then it gets a little deeper, or higher. We're talking about mountain peaks, so higher. That Jesus isn't the only member of the Trinity that's, that's mentioned here. It says here uh, in verse eight, it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if you caught that little language in there, it said Jesus became obedient? Wait, 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 I thought Jesus was God. So who is Jesus obeying? What was, who is Jesus having to like submit himself to and obey? All, all obedience takes submission. So who is Jesus submitting himself to to obey some task that was given to him? The obedience of Christ, the obedience of Jesus was a submission to the Trinitarian Godhead. It was a submission to the obedience of the Father's will. Jesus submissively obeyed and that submission was to the Father's will will. Now, we could back up for a second and say, just briefly on the Trinity, that Jesus submitting himself to the Father's will is the very nature of God, because remember, the very nature of God is the nature of the servant. The Trinity is constantly serving each other. That's, that's the Trinitarian God has the beauty of it, that God is a servant. But if, you, if we pause to think about this, Jesus submitted himself to the Father which means the Father had ordained for Jesus to do something. The Father had given Jesus a task. The Father's will had laid out for Jesus something to do. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Meaning, Father, this thing that you want me to go do, which is to absorb the wrath of the justice of God on, on behalf or for the sake of our people, I don't want to do that. <laughs> But the nature of a servant is submissive. And Father, not my will, but your will be done. I will submit myself to the Father's will. Okay, again, lots of theology, lots of Christology. Let me make this really practical. Do you realize what this means? That the task God the Father gave God the Son to do was to empty himself for your sake. That's the kind of father you have. That tasked his own son to come and be ripped apart for you. That's why the whole song of Philippians 2 ends with verse 11. All, this is what he says, all to the glory of God the Father. How in the world did the willful submission, the willful obedience of Jesus the servant, who was in very nature God, how did that bring glory to God the Father? It's because the work of Jesus cast a spotlight on the Father. The work of Jesus gives glory to the Father because it's what the Father gave Jesus to do. The work of Jesus doesn't just display something about his own heart, about his own nature. It also displays something about the Father's heart and the Father's nature. The work of Jesus shows you what the Father is like. Do you want to know what God is really like? Do you, know, do you want to know what he thinks about you? Do you want to know how he considers you, how he ponders about you? Do you want to know what his heart is really beating for? Look at Jesus. 
Because the work of Jesus brings glory to the Father, casts a spotlight on the Father. Hey, do you want to know what the Trinity is like? Watch my life and you're going to see what the Trinity is like. Because the Father gave me this task to do. Because the Father adores you. The Father wanted you in the family. The Father wanted to rescue you. The Father wanted to accomplish for himself and save for himself a people. The point of all this Christology, all this, verse 5 through 11, all this is to show the reader this. That as the reader beholds the magnificence of this God-man Jesus who is in very nature God and in very nature a servant, took on human likeness, as they consider the humility of the incarnate Son of God, as, the, as they see that Jesus' work was obeying the Father and the Father's will to become obedient unto death and obedient unto wrath is to realize this. All of this Christology, this is what Paul's doing in Philippians 2. All of this Christology is to show you this. You were worth it to him. That the Father thought this a good plan. And when Jesus accomplished it, told in verse 11, it brought glory to the Father. The Father smiled when Jesus accomplished his plan because it, it was worth the cost for him. He doesn't think that the mission got a bad return on investment. He doesn't stand at the end of his work and think it was a waste of time. He doesn't look back at his life, death, resurrection and think, maybe they didn't deliver on what I wish would have happened. The Father doesn't regret it he doesn't have buyer's remorse, and he certainly doesn't feel like he overpaid for you. And do you know what he spent on you? Jesus. And when that, all that took and all that payment went through, Paul just told you it brought glory to the Father because the Father thought you worth it. So here's what I'm going to invite you into. You don't have to understand that. You don't even have to think your way into believing it. Here's what I'm going to invite you into as we close in song. Would you behold it? That's what the Father asks you to do. That's what Paul's leading you to do. He's not comparing how, how good Jesus is at this servant thing to shame you. He's actually saying, hey, don't go be inspired by Jesus the servant. Go be loved by Jesus the servant. Look at what he did for you. And when you're loved by Jesus the servant, then, then you've got a shred of hope of going to serve others. And so would we behold this Jesus, not that we would understand every depth of Christological theology of the New Testament. <laughs> but that our, our, our brief look at, at Christology would show us you were worth this to him and it brought the Father glory. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we don't need more lectures, we need more um, beholding. Would we stand in awe of the God who gave Jesus this task and would we also stand in wonder at the Jesus that submitted himself to obedience for our sake. We need, we need uh, the Father, we need the Spirit to open our eyes that we might see Jesus more clearly than we currently do. Would you um, humble us at the sight of your, hum at your humility? Would you have us stand in awe at just how much of a servant you are for our sake. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.